So this morning, um, the sermon's going to be out of Romans 8, uh, 18 to 25. Um, so I'm going to first uh, read uh, the scripture uh, for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Um, we just pray uh, that you will open our hearts um, to uh, what Pastor Mike has prepared for us this morning. Um, we know that you want to change us to be more like you. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today is the first day of the new year. Many of us are looking forward to the fresh starts, the new beginnings, and the promise that a new year has for us. That is especially true for those whose 2022 was a bad year. But has it occurred to any of us that 2023 might be worse? that this new year actually holds worse news for us. We know that there's nothing rational in really thinking that everything bad will go away with the calendar year passing and give us a fresh start. But there's something beneath it all that tugs at our sense of hope, that this will all just pass and everything will get better that things are bound to naturally work themselves out for good if we only try hard enough, or set our minds to it, or give it enough time. Because isn't that how things are? But God's word opens up the real problem and shows us how deep it goes. When we experience disease, social unrest, floods, natural instability, etc., it's part of a deeper problem. These are symptoms of a world that is fundamentally broken. And things will not get better naturally or on their own. And yet, when we think about hope, our expectations often fall short from true hope if they only go as far as solving those symptoms. True hope for real people who live in a real world for people like you and myself 
who have real hopes and dreams and fears must account for the broken state of the world. And it must reckon with our inability to do anything to mend it back together. True hope must come from outside ourselves and the world if we really understand the dire nature of things. If real hope can only come from outside of us, then it can only come from God. And because God is rich in mercy, he has done just that. That's real hope for sufferers. That he holds out the promised hope of glory for you despite all the suffering that you experience now. So we're going to pull out four key ideas from this passage in Romans 8. The first is suffering. The Apostle Paul knew all about suffering. His life and ministry were characterized by it. And that wasn't just because he devoted himself to bearing witness about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, it was something that caused him deep pain and distress. And no matter how much he prayed, God would not take it away. He writes about suffering such deep affliction that there were times when he despaired even life itself. Paul knew all about suffering firsthand. But he also knew that suffering he experienced wasn't because God was angry with him. Suffering exists in the world because it lies in futility and subjection to a curse. That things are not the way they were intended to be by design. This is the root of all suffering, whether it be on a catastrophic scale or in the most private aspects of life. In verse 20, we're reminded, it reminds us that all creation was subjected to futility. In verse 21, everything lies in bondage to corruption. This is not how things were first created. When God created, he pronounced a benediction upon everything at its completion. He blessed it all and called it very good. Life was meant to flourish. The natural order was intended to be fruitful. All of creation was meant to reach forward and bloom into glory, to reach an intended goal of unimaginable fruitfulness. But the tragedy is that as Adam strayed from the path given to him, a path that would lead to life and glory, as the representative of all of humanity, he fell and brought everything crashing down around him. Life would no longer reach this beautiful fruition. Instead, it was subject to futility. Now, the word futility here is the same word translated as vanity in Ecclesiastes. So, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the writer as he reflects upon the world. The only thing that seems certain as we look at it all is that suffering and loss is inevitable. Life is futile. It cannot reach its intended goal. From a natural human perspective, it seems to meander on and on 
without any real purpose, never really getting anywhere. And Ecclesiastes asks, what's the point? You work your whole life, and for what? For whatever fruit you bore in your hard labors to crumble and fade after you at the hands of another. And really, what does it matter? Because we're all going to die anyway. How terrible that in contrast to the fruitfulness that God intended. When labor was meant to bring forth blessing with ease, now it comes with difficult toil and no guarantees. Why are we elated and perhaps even surprised when we garden and then gather in an enormous bountiful harvest? Because deep down, we expect our labors to be frustrated. That's the way of the world as we commonly know it. Life in all creation is subject to frustration as it stretches forward, hoping for its intended glory and fruitful blessing, yet only ends in futile ends. Frustration happens when we expect fruit and receive only barrenness. When beauty is sought and gives way to disaster. When life emerges only to be stricken by death. Creation reels under the curse as disasters happen. There is something deeply broken in this world, and the sadness of it all is that even as we try our hardest to fix it, we see more and more just how broken it all is. We're freshly confronted with our own futility. When we begin to tackle one issue and try to solve it, we see that the thread is wound tightly with 10 others. Just think of how many wrongs, issues, injustices, etc., are all tied up with each other. Optimistic hope wrought by our labors needs a bucket of cold water dumped on it to awaken us to the reality of just how bad things are. And this is the root of human suffering. It's because of the fallen world in which you participate. Here we are, standing at the beginning of 2023. What do you expect? If the world is truly broken at its most basic levels, this year is going to buck and reel and fall apart just as all the other years have before. It might look different, but it's all going to happen again and again. So what hope is there for you in this new year? True hope means a total overhaul of the foundations of human experience. It requires cosmic renewal, a breaking of the status quo of suffering and futility. At its base level, hope requires divine intervention. And that brings us to the second key idea, which is glory. We can't miss the important clause which begins at the end of verse 20 in hope. God has given hope. What is this hope? The promise of coming glory. In verse 21, all creation will be freed from its shackles of futility and decay. There is now hope because the way is clear for creation to experience true fruitfulness and beauty. The intended goal of glory is that 
there is there to be had again. That means there is hope for us in our sufferings. While we experience the aches and pains of frustration in this fallen world, God will have a final say. This was part of the plan all along. Even as God pronounced a curse upon the world, he planted the seed of hope. In Genesis 3, 14 to 15, before he uttered the words of curse upon Adam and Eve, and that their labors would be frustrated and the world would be subject to suffering, he pronounced words of hope to them in the form of a curse upon the serpent who deceived them. That God would send a deliverer to undo all this mess and bring blessing and glory back to humanity and creation. To once again experience flourishing and renewed glory. And none of this caught him by surprise. God fully knew and planned for this to happen. And not a bit of your own experience of suffering has caught him off guard either. There, are all, there has always been hope because that's what God does. He takes hopeless situations and breathes his life into those circumstances to shine his glory for them to know. And God has revealed his heart of hope most clearly in his son. Jesus came bringing hope to this world. He didn't come to empower us so we could then fix the world. No, he came to fix everything wrong himself in a radical way in a way that we really can't comprehend because we have no context for life apart from suffering and futility. He came to bring glory to the world. He spent his ministry healing the sick, casting out demons, restoring the broken back to wholeness, bringing sinners and outcasts home into fellowship with God. All these were signs of him undoing the things wrong with us and life. Moments where the glory of the coming restored world were breaking into the distressed world as we know it now. Jesus took death on a cross and burial in a tomb. The common plague of futility for us all. And transformed it into resurrection, life, and glory. And from that cross and resurrection, he continues to give glory to people who know only suffering and shame. He takes ruined people and restores them in beauty and righteousness. He takes the destitute and gives them the world. He even takes spiritual orphans and makes them his own. Verse 23. Being made children of God, brought into his family... And that means we have nothing less than his glory as an inheritance in store for us as we await. But we get to experience it right now because God has given you in Christ the first fruits of that promised glory, the Spirit. The Spirit who is present and active at creation is also present and active in recreation and is already within you, given by Jesus himself. The Spirit is the down payment of the glory that is graciously yours, inside you, 
reminding you in your weakness that you continue to remain a beloved child with a glorious hope. And that's good news, because still we must await our full redemption when we will be fully transformed in glory. That brings us to our third key idea, which is groaning. Groaning is our response as we anticipate the glory that is to be revealed. What is this idea of groaning? When you last read in the news of the latest mass shooting, what was your reaction? The feeling that we've been here before, seeing another act of senseless violence, the fatigue at it happening yet again. That's groaning. It's the attitude that we automatically feel and express of frustration with the status quo, and it yearns for it all to be over, for the glory of God to be revealed in this world. Groaning is longing for what's to come. And ultimately, we groan because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We know that futility and despair, though they are common experience, will eventually give way to glory. And that glory is already paid down, given in advance. And every time we're confronted with suffering, with human evil, with disaster, with sickness, we groan and cry out longingly for God to finish paying out what he promised. To end futility and suffering and to bring the long-promised beauty and glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. But you're not alone in your groaning. Sometimes it's the sense of being all alone that makes our cries so difficult. But they don't go unheard. Nor are you alone. Because as you have the Spirit with you, you also have Jesus with you by his Spirit in your times of groaning. And Jesus has suffered and groaned deeply for you. He suffered all the pains of this fallen world. He groaned on the cross as he took your sins. He knows what it's like, and still he's chosen to be with you in your moments of longing and aloneness. His spirit is his personal pledge and bond to set everything aright and give you future glory. There might be a question that is haunting some of you, even from the first point on suffering. Why? Why would God bring such suffering into the world for glory? That's a profound and difficult question to ask. And ultimately, there are parts of that which can't be answered. But no matter what our sufferings are, we must remember this. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. He is God the Son coming to us and personally revealing his character through his life and words and actions. And it's in Jesus that we most clearly see God's heart for those who are suffering. We see his coming and being with the afflicted, giving hope and walking with those who suffer. And that's where we see the deep beauty of God, 
a transcendent being who would stoop so low to be with us personally and bring comfort in our groanings. Why would God bring sufferings into this world or even my life? Friend, don't attempt to answer that before first considering who God is in Jesus. Could it be that without all the sufferings you may have endured this past year, you would not have known God himself in the way you do now? Or that your longing for his coming glory would be diminished? Paul has an answer to this in verse 18. He says that the sufferings of the present time cannot be compared with the glory to be revealed. He's not laying out a detailed theology of suffering, but just noting that our experience of suffering leads us to further cherish hope. Again, Paul was a man well acquainted with all kinds of suffering. And as an apostle, as one who he, who he said in 2 Corinthians 12, caught a vision of heaven, he knew better than any of us here of the glories that are to come. And after weighing them in the balance, this is his conclusion. Not that the eternal glory is better than present suffering, but that it doesn't even compare. The intent here isn't to minimize our suffering, but if knowing God is the highest good and God makes himself known more fully in our sufferings, then that goes to show how God is able to redeem all things even our deepest fears and moments of distress. What are you turning to when you feel the groans of this world or in your own life? God invites you to come to him and bring along your longings, your questions, your pains. Come to him, even with all your emotional burdens, and allow him to give you rest and comfort. And that brings us to our fourth and final idea, hope. We were promised hope, and we will receive what was promised because the one who promised hope to the world and to us is trustworthy. And so, as we groan and long, we do so with hope and anticipation. And as Paul writes, this causes us to hope with great eagerness, a longing that cranes the neck, looking toward the horizon for our great hope to dawn. But there's part of this hope that we're given that's not easy for us to grasp. In verses 24 and 25, the Christian hope the hope of the gospel is in something that we really have no context for. What does a world without suffering look like? What does it mean to go through life with no fear and no shadows? Or with life and blessings blossoming and with abundance being the norm? It almost sounds fantastical. Perhaps in a way it is, not like a fairy tale, but because the coming glory of our hope is so vastly different from our normalized experiences. 
But to make it otherwise and according to our normal experience isn't actually hope. For hope to be real, to actually be a hope worth loving and longing for, it must exceed our categories and go beyond our imaginations. And for hope to be real and lasting, to be eternal and thus worthy of our trust, we need wholesale upheaval of the world's status quo. Yet our hope is oriented to the future, to what we haven't seen. And that makes it good news because God will do something that we cannot do. Renew the foundations of the very creation itself. In the article, In Defense of Happy Endings, Thoughts on Joy and the Hallmark Channel, the author begins an analysis of holiday movies on the Hallmark Channel. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the Hallmark Channel on TV, particularly during Christmas, is full of original made-for-TV movies in which the simple joys and sentimentality are overshadowed only by their predictability. It's the same formula in each movie. Two very dissimilar people have a chance meeting during the holidays. You can pick them up right off the bat and immediately know the ending. It doesn't matter the circumstances or what happens in the story. By the time 90 minutes are finished, they're going to be in love and starting a new life together. We watch something like that and know that's not how real life goes. It isn't an accurate portrayal of the suffering and futility that we experience in the world. No one's life is as predictable as that, nor turns out as happy as it looks. But at the same time, while still acknowledging the reality of fallen life, perhaps we need the Hallmark movie to remind us of the certainty of hope. Because it doesn't matter if 60 minutes into the movie the couple has a huge fight and the woman throws a plate at the man and the man storms down a country road in his pickup. The story isn't over. There's still 30 minutes to go. And we know that somehow this tragedy is going to be resolved and turn into great joy for everyone. Perhaps we ourselves need reminders that no matter how dire things appear as we and the creation groan, there will still be a beautiful resolution in the end that's not only expected, it's guaranteed. The Christian hope is one that reckons with honest lament while also holding to a joyous hope. It needs proper balance. Some of us focus too much on the nice ending to the detriment of acknowledging real human experience and the pains of life that fills our days. But at the same time, perhaps some of us only focus on the grit and despair to the detriment of holding to true joy that no matter how bad things will get or appear to be, that God will resolve all things in the end. We need both. As the author of the article poignantly states, a Christianity that has forgotten how to lament is damaged. A Christianity that has forgotten how to celebrate is dead.
as the old year is behind us and we're now in 2023, what do you expect? You can expect more pains and frustrations and more sufferings. But you can also expect that even in the midst of your sufferings and groanings, that God will certainly make all things new someday, somehow. And just as the pains and sufferings are far worse in reality than in a typical Hallmark movie, so also will the joys and celebrations that God will bring about in Christ be far better. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we live lives and we meet suffering. And we groan because this is not how life is supposed to be, and yet it is how life is. And yet we know that glory awaits, that you will recreate and make all things new. And you already are. You are in us and you are making us new. And so we have hope that you, the God of everything, who is completely trustworthy, will come again and will make all things new and take away all suffering and pain and sorrow and tears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.